excited to talk to Mark Mills this morning. You have a, a, a very impressive and extensive bio, so I think I might give you a few sentences to tell everybody a little bit about who you are before we start talking about uh, the uh, Roaring Twenties that we can all look forward to. <laughs> yeah. Well, I, I always recommend people use the magic Dr. Google sure. to look look people up since, what for better or for worse, there's a lot about me at the interwebs, but uh, I have a website, tech-pundit.com. And of course, Manhattan Institute has uh, a biography. I'm, I'm you know, I, I've been involved in uh, technology all my life. Uh, a lot of my life have been involved in policy. And uh, I've also been involved in the investment world and still am. And I'm involved in all three still. So it's a form of intellectual whiplash to um, go from the world of physics, where I have my degree, to the world of finance where I'm involved in a, uh, as a partner and founding partner in a venture fund that invests in software for energy for the future and uh, in the public policy world uh, of technology and energy, the two domains that I spend uh, a lot of my time on and where my work is focused. And of course, technology and energy intersect in two directions. Uh, technology matters for producing energy uh, by technology, everybody means these days computers, communications, but that's, of course, a misdirection of what technology really is. And inversely, all computing, all communications, all things require energy. Sure. So the two worlds intersect. I work at the intersection. I may be one of the very few people that does okay. that. But anyway, well, I think that's- um, the, the title that you wear that I like the most is optimist. You call, you consider yourself to be an optimist. I consider myself to be an optimist. And, you know, I'm pretty old, but still, when it comes to emerging technologies, I always feel like I want to lean in. And I am not afraid of them, too. Uh, I also have kids who have kind of forced me to lean in all the time. But, um, you know, I have a tiny little Coinbase account, a couple hundred dollars in there, not much, just so I can understand how, how it works and what people are, yeah. are picking. And yeah. I, you know, I've brought this up a few times at the Show Me Institute and gotten some odd looks, but the metaverse, I'm very curious about the fact that people are buying real estate in the metaverse. And I know I don't understand. I didn't understand CompuServe when it happened in the, I don't know, late eighties, early nineties, but I was like, what is this CD? I kind of want to know more about this. So I feel like it's a great thing. I feel like um, AI and uh, robots and all of that are are positive, but most people don't, but you do. And why do you think that this is not a sign of the Armageddon, which is not the, <laughs> you know, the, the horsemen coming when we're all, you know, everyone's yeah. going to have universal basic income and no one will have a job and we all exist in this metaverse and we'll live in a basement. We won't interact socially. Why is, why is your view more utopian than dystopian? <laughs> well, what a I, question. I, that yeah, is. That's so there's a lot to unpack there. So you, I could say read my book because sure. I answer all those questions. Right. It took a few hundred pages to answer them all. Uh no, seriously. Um first I, I prefer the label realist rather than optimist because okay. it's easy to be a pessimist. Uh, people do bad things, they've always done bad things, and there are always people who do bad things. And so I begin my book by pointing out that. There will have always been wars and there will always be wars. My book was published before the latest war started in the Ukraine. I'm not not all naive about that. I was a cold warrior uh, in my early career working on weapon systems in, in the missile defense and uh, missile guidance. So and then, you know, nonproliferation for nuclear weapons. So it was uh, where I began my career and also began my, my career in semiconductors. Oh, yeah. Manufacturing the computer chips, the processes for that. So. It, it's easy to, to see what 
can go wrong. And there's always, it's an old, old adage, you know, technology is a two-edged sword. Uh, the, probably the first technology was a sharpened stick to get food. <laughs> and we know people put it to bad use as well. So, sure. I'm, you know, I'm not trivializing it. I'm not unaware of that. But I think at the same time, in the point of my book, is to first evaluate what the goods are, what the benefits are from new technologies and what difference they can make to entertainment, to our well-being, to our, our general wealth, to the world's wealth, to the environment, to all the things that we, we care about. And that doesn't mean that there aren't downsides. So we always have to manage the downsides in some fashion. It's a social compact, if you like. It's, a not, an, it's not a new idea, but to focus only on the downsides is to miss why we have to get it right, so to speak, both politically and structurally, to enjoy the benefits of the upside. So no one would deny that technology has contributed to both a cleaner environment and greater wealth for the world on average. It's obvious. In fact, it's the primary force. But for, here's the thought experiment. One of the greatest political achievements, arguably, of human history has been, and this is not sort of a bombastic statement, I'm a Canadian that became an American, is the American Constitution, the creation of this odd class of democratic republic, which has a lot, a lot of freedoms. And as the Nobel economist Phelps called it in his book, it called the mass flourishing that happened in America, happened all over the world. But America in particular was home to an incredible amount of flourishing because of the system we put in place, allowing freedoms and capital flows and and you know rights, all these kinds of you know intellectual property rights, not just physical property rights. So how what what caused that? Well, if if the governance that was put in place two hundred plus years ago, which is still in place today and largely the same, even sure. despite our fighting about it, it's still very very similar, very different than everybody else's, as I can attest coming from a parliamentary system. Sure, sure. If the technologies of the world had not changed, we would we, none of us would be particularly wealthier and, the, and we wouldn't have had all the benefits and all the growth that occurred if it were not for that. We'd all be farmers and we'd be an agrarian economy without antibiotics, without sure. medical, without cars, without- Electricity. All, all, yeah, all that's obvious. So- that's where my book is focused is what, what does the next century bring? In particular, I focus on the next decade because the 20s. yeah, the 20s. Because otherwise, you know, a century of science fiction, 10 or 20 years is forecasting. Yeah. And uh, I think the 2020s are a lot like the 1920s. And that's why I'm very optimistic, but I'm realistic. I again at the beginning the introduction of my book, I point out that it is possible to Sovietize an economy. The Russians did means that the statist controls to destroy the potential for growth can be imposed by government Mm -hmm. malfeasance. That's what the Soviet Union was. It did not benefit as much as America or France or Germany from the great expansion of the 20th century, the great expansion of wealth and well-being. They're wealthier than they were on average per capita from 1920 to today in the Soviet Union, but only a fraction as much growth has happened here. Why? Well, we know the answer. They Sovietized their economy. So, I mean, that's a long way of saying, I mean, I, I, you know, the, the, the tendency for everyone to be uh, pessimistic about bad things is not a bad tendency in this sense. 
it causes us to focus on making sure the bad stuff doesn't happen, whether it's political or in war fighting, and it doesn't guarantee it won't happen. But anyway, that's so the rope, yeah, I mean, the rope I, you know, that's 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 a perspective as opposed to a conclusion, right? Sure. So my grandmother was born in 1903 and died in 1996 or something, lived most of the century. Yeah. I can only imagine, I was talking to somebody about this recently, how the, the staggering changes that happened in her life. Yeah. From the yeah, moment yeah. she was born in a small rural town to like she went to college in Chicago, Illinois. And even yeah. just that must have been in 20 years, just unbelievable. And a pandemic and a couple of world wars and then television, <laughs> telephone. I mean, everything that happened in her lifetime. And it just seems almost faster than what's happening now. But now we know, you know, we we're looking at this next uh, period of time where a lot of things are going to go virtual or or artificial, or however you want to describe meta, however you describe it. And I think people are very afraid of that, right? Be- yeah. But I also feel like technology often gets out in front of us and we we have the technology, we can develop it. And then we're like, oh, shoot, what should we do about that problem? Like social media, we have it. Great. Everyone loves yeah. it. Now we're like, big problem, social media. Same with virtual reality. I do education policy. A lot of schools have realized how cool it is. You can use an iPhone in a cardboard box and with virtual reality, your students can be on the space station, right? Or they can be in the Parthenon Yeah, 2,000 years ago. Really cool. But I don't think they've beyond to yet think about like the potential negative consequences. And those always come up second. And then I'm confident that we find a way to mitigate them. That's oh, where okay. I stand. Well, I think, I think first you and I agree. And and of course the trajectory you described is, is, is the normal trajectory. We don't solve problems that don't <clears> exist. In other words, you know, we, we, when technologies are invented, like the car, uh, the kinds of uh, downsides from the automobile, which have to do with both accidents and pollution and other, other, you know, those are the two obvious ones. They become issues to solve as the, the technology becomes more ubiquitous and affordable and then, of course, we, we both we both do engineering and regulation, governance, if you like, to fix some of the the side effects, which you could, you know, and I don't belittle the side effects, but that's <laughs> that's human nature. That's how we do things. You can't do it any other way. So uh, the, the idea is the problem is we have a, a form of presentism. I mean, we think today that our problems are uniquely challenging or uniquely new uh, because all the old stuff is just commonplace to us. And if one reads history, you'll find that it's not the case. The, the car was a pretty amazing thing. So was radio and TV. So were pharmaceuticals, was with the development of chemicals and polymers and materials, all, all of which flourished in the 1920s, by the way. It's when they began, not when they were invented, when they began to expand to become high, of high utility. So those, those are, you know, those sense that we, we have to uniquely deal with these challenges is myopia doesn't yeah, mean yeah. they aren't challenges. <clears throat> now, when it comes to things like the metaverse and social media and education, I write a lot about that in the book because the things that interest me about technology first are what are the technologies? So my book is roughly a third is about what are the technologies, what, what's changing. The other, uh, more than more than a third is about what does it mean for things like employment kind of work people do mm-hmm. what does it mean you know for production of goods what does it mean for moving goods and people what does it mean for entertainment which i think is an extraordinarily interesting domain what does it mean for healthcare and especially what does it mean for education now you know there's 
there's a long history of educators being fascinated by technologies. And they're fascinated by the same technologies as entertainers. So there's a one-to-one correspondence. So when Edison made the, when the first um, overhead projectors were, it, people of, of a certain age would remember what an overhead projector oh, yeah. is, right? Uh, when they were invented as an idea, it was going to revolutionize education. Radio was going to revolutionize education. In fact, high schools had radio stations. They used it to broadcast lessons in the early radio era. And then there was a big debate about whether that was unfair to those high schools that couldn't afford a radio station. Sound kind of familiar, doesn't it? And did the radio stations revolutionize education? Well, uh, this would be a technical term. No, duh, they did not. Right. In fact, I'm a big believer, as I wrote in my book, during the great lockdowns, that education is fundamentally a one-on-one experience when it's done well. People have to be in front of a teacher. But I also write that there's enormous amplification and enhancement potential from things like Zoom using as tutors, from virtual reality, visiting and learning and seeing. So anyway, you know, this is this is this is exactly the problem. We have most of what's happened in the in the what the cloud has done, what internet communications and these new technologies have done has brought big changes to the information domains, which is yeah. communications, finance, trade, you know, e-commerce. But, and that's, that constitutes roughly 10 or 15% of the total GDP of American economy. The other 80 plus percent is in goods. So yeah, I want to talk about that a little bit. So yeah. in terms of employment, um, I, I don't. I suppose most listeners realize that most factory. I don't know. Is most the right word? You probably do. Many factories are run by robotic machines, whether they're robots or not. It's not yeah. people turning bolts anymore and making cars or or anything for that matter. <clears throat> um, and so, a lot of people are concerned that when we robotize everything, if that's a word, then people are going to be out of jobs. And then what are they yeah. going to do? For, or like if we have driverless trucks, then what about all the truck drivers? Sure. However, at the same time, we've had this great resignation where people are like, nah, I really don't even want my job. <laughs> so it's like, how do these things come together? And and if, you know, I, I have a friend who works in a dermatology lab where they just bring in slides of potential sure, um, sure. Pathology answers. Lab. They digitize them and a person reads them. Well, once they've got a couple hundred thousands of these slides, an algorithm could be built that will read them more accurately than the highly specialized dermatologist. So this cuts across all sectors from the highest skilled workers to the lowest. Um, What will those people do for a living? Yeah. Well, this is, this this is one of the oldest themes in um, technology and economic history that automation replace labor and it'll eliminate jobs and people won't have anything to do. This worry goes back more than a couple hundred years. In fact, it dates back to Roman times. I actually have, have a, <laughs> a quote in my book of a, a Roman, uh, uh, a wealthy Roman centurion whose engineer has, and this is you know recorded in history because they wrote stuff down in Roman times, discovered a more efficient way to move the stones to build his, palace and could reuse fewer fewer people in that case they were these were slaves and the response of the centurion was well then what will i do with my slaves how will i keep them engaged what will i do i anyway it was kind of this here's the factoid in the 19th if we if we if we charted from the 1960s when the automation really began in the modern form the first robots showed up in factories in fact 
in a GM factory, the, the Unimate first one-armed welding robot was made by a company called uh, Unimate. So it was a, and then GM to their credit tested it out in New Jersey and they first installed it in the Lordstown factory in Ohio, which has since become the home of Rivian electric truck mm-hmm. kind of kind mm-hmm. of ironic full circle. Uh, President Kennedy launched a commission to look at the impact of automation on labor, worried that uh, the automotive sector and others would soon create too many unemployed people because of automation, specifically worried about it, and formed a blue ribbon panel, which President Johnson continued with a bunch of Nobel laureates on it. They wisely concluded that automation didn't destroy work. It created wealth, which led to more employment because there were more and different kinds of jobs. But they still recommended, just in case, <laughs> we might consider a universal basic income. And that was that's where the phrase started in the 1960s. Now, here's, here's the fact. The number of jobs, if you buy type of job, not the number of people employed, 60% of the category of jobs that existed in the 1960s don't exist today as jobs. No duh, right? I mean, right. there are no rooms full of typists. There are no rooms okay. full of accountants. There's no rooms full of draftsmen. There's no, there's no you can think of all the, the yeah. category. 60% of all the jobs that existed as a category don't exist today, just in that short time frame. And yet we have, we don't have unemployment today. We have underemployment. We have more jobs than we have people willing to take them or able to take them. Mm-hmm. So we've automated an awful lot of stuff in the last uh, 60 years. And we're going to automate a lot more stuff. Automation does display specific jobs. So the, the Luddites- Temporarily? Well, permanently, in a sense. Specific job. The Luddites were right. Mm-hmm. The automated loom meant you didn't need, you didn't need them <laughs> anymore. So the, the social challenge, if you like, is for the jobs that are eliminated, do the people who don't have that job have the ability to take a different job? That's a- a non-trivial question and problem. Over time, we know for a fact that it does not kill work. It increases yeah. employment because there are more things and new things and different things to do, not just simplistically, oh, somebody has to make the robots and maintain them. That's true. Yeah. All the truck drivers are going to become coders. Well, I mean, that, I get very that, tired of the like, go, go take a coding class. A truck well, driver doesn't well, want to be a coder. I uh, First of all, we're going to have fewer coders in the future, not more, because the one thing coders are really good at is writing code to write code. I so know. Codeless Today software, code. as you know, is the big is the big trend. And there will, mm-hmm. there will never be more coders than there are roughly, in my view, as a percentage of the economy. If the future will have coding, broadly speaking, as a percentage of the total workforce, roughly comparable to ranching and farming today, <laughs> which is a few percent, and which is about I'm- where it is, by the way. And where it belongs. Most jobs are not STEM jobs. In fact, most jobs, for very good reasons, shouldn't be STEM jobs. I'm a, I'm a physicist. I think science, technology, and math are all great, great things. Not everybody wants to do it or can That's do right. it or should do it. Anybody, anybody should be, everybody should be a doctor. But uh, I look, I, I'm not trivializing the uh, transformational problems. In fact, that's why a wealthy right. economy can afford things like unemployment insurance and retraining. Wealthy economies can afford that. That's unique in human history. And that wealth comes from technology, which is a form, which is productivity, which allows us the luxury of doing things like spending money in healthcare and education, spending money on cleaner environment, and spending money on retraining, helping people 
uh, find jobs for the work that they lost and helping them have mobility because wind back the clock to the 60s, if you lose a job, finding a job in another city where you might be willing to go is really hard. I mean, you can't pick up the phone. There was no internet. You're not getting the paper from St. Louis if you live in Detroit. I mean, it's really hard to get that newspaper. Today, it's almost trivial to find a job anywhere in the country if you're willing to, if you one's willing to move. And Americans have always been a more mobile economy in terms of people moving around than any other uh, country for the last uh, century. And we seem to have figured out remote work in the last few years. I mean, I do feel like the pandemic has been disruptive and <laughs> in an education, super disruptive. Yeah. And a lot of people who never wanted to Zoom had no choice but to learn Zoom. Yeah. Like yeah. I, there are a lot of people who are like, I never wanted to learn how to do that in my lifetime. And they had to do it. And so it forced people to adopt technologies that they didn't really want to adopt. But, um, you know, I think we've learned that remote work can be as productive. And some companies now are going off of having business hours. Like there's no need for that. There's unlimited vacation. We're we're sort of getting this sort of, you know, work by unit, not by time um, thing, which I think is a a positive um, development too. But why do you suppose then, or what is your sort of take on this great resignation then? Why are people walking away at this time? Yeah, well, because it can. When there's underemployment, you you have options. This is that's that's the biggest single factor. Uh, you don't quit a job if you can't get another job. The, the traditional advice I'd given to my children that I took myself is if I didn't like what I was doing, I found another job before I quit. Because you know you might be out of work for a long time. Mm-hmm. This is this is different in a in an economy that faces underemployment not unemployment, you can quit and you can find another job when almost any time you want, if you have, if you have skills and most people have some skills, right. But I, that's, that's one of the reasons. The other, the other is that uh, I think there's a certain amount of naivete on the part of some people. If you can find this in surveys and polls, Pew did a very good analysis on this, that they would prefer the quote gig economy as as it were self-employment. And that's naivete. That's for most people they discover it's not as much fun as they thought because you're essentially hustling all the time. And it's a little different than having an employer where you don't have to hustle every day to find a a new client, if it were. So I do think there'll be far, I mean, we've always, there's been a long run trend towards small business formation, the gig economy in America. It got damaged by the great recession of 2008 to 2000 and roughly 12, 13. Uh, It slowed down business formation in a weird way, the great lockdowns accelerated it because people sort of had to or wanted to. But I, I would I would respectfully disagree with the thesis that uh, you, you proffered on um, Zoom economy and Zoom Zoomifying to work and it being productive. So I I put a lot of this data in my book and the chapter on that. Uh, we 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 have and we, the lockdowns accelerated uh, the use of hybrid and uh, hybrid work, going to the office less often, being at home more often for things you can do alone. But what it didn't change is human nature. For for most of what most people do, and there's a lot of data on this, and there's been a lot of this for a long time, ever since telecommuting was an idea, which was birthed in the 70s. For most things, for most tasks, which by that I would say over 70%, I think it's probably 80%, being there matters. You can't do it by remote or Zoom. That doesn't mean that some of the tasks that you do for your job can't be done at home. Even if you're a backhoe operator, if you're doing a recertification for a safety thing, you can stay home and do do that sure. by computer. 
So there's a there's an overemphasis on the ability to do remote work. Many businesses know for a fact because there's a lot of data on this that proximity of human beings uh, leads to greater productivity and greater creativity. You know, Matt Ridley had a line on this in his book about this ten years ago. You, you may remember it. He he uh, he he used he summarized it in a sort of mildly salacious way, but he, he was was accurate. He said ideas have sex. <laughs> He said, and his point was, pe- people are more productive in terms of intellectual, not not procreation. Sure, sure. W- when they're in proximity, and if you think about a meeting, if you think about body language signals, if you think think about brainstorming, yes, once you've had a meeting with people, you get to know them. You can do like we're doing now; we can zoomify, okay, and it can really be a uh, an accelerator of a lot of forms of, of exchange and communication, but not, it's not just the physical jobs, like being a doctor or a nurse or building a building. You have to be there. <laughs> you mm-hmm. just got to be there. Mm-hmm. Robots aren't that good. I'm sorry. They just mm-hmm. aren't, but human nature is what it is. It hasn't changed. So a good deal of what I do in my book and thinking about forecasting is, is trying to reconcile how we sort that stuff out. Some things can be easily uh, automated or robotified, some things can be zoomified, if you like, but not everything. And so it changes the nature of the workforce. It changes how education might be structured a little bit. Well, couldn't we though meet in the metaverse? Couldn't wow. our couldn't our Sims meet in the metaverse and it would be sure. virtually sure. the same as I don't know. Right. Yeah, I think I don't I know think. if it'll be the same or not. I suspect we're gonna do it. People are already doing it. People are sure. Oculus already has meeting rooms that you can sure. reserve. Sure. I don't know. Yeah. I think they're really good at the head and really bad at the body. So like you get a pretty good head and then you get like a stick body or something. And, but I assume that's going to improve over time so that we will look like ourselves. I don't know, but um, you know, Uh, hmm. you're right. So let's, let's, you can stick. I agree. I, so I, and again, I'm I'm, I'm promoting my book again. I write, you and I are, are thinking on the same lines. Of course, of course, uh, the metaverse or virtual and augmented reality. In fact, I, not only will they make a difference, I think they're the biggest single difference in terms of the structure of communications that has occurred since the invention of the telephone and telegraph. Yeah. It's as big a deal to, to go three-dimensional, which is what augmented virtual reality are, especially virtual reality. It's as big a deal to do that, to go from where we are now in a planar Zoom thing, as it was to go from telegraph to the internet. That, that It's that big a transformation. And it's and it's going to be that hard, by the way, to get to truly what we'll call a photorealistic uh, metaverse. It will require another generation of communications and compute capacity. We're not. And we're people not there don't wear those things, right? We, no we, one's going to wear a goofy Oculus every day. We not don't want to wear that on our heads. No. So it's going to have to get down to a pair of glasses or something. Right. Exactly. And we know that's possible, by the way, both, mm-hmm. both because those glasses exist in prototype phase. Their resolution is not good enough. There's all kinds of technical issues, but they're solvable. So I, I don't have any doubt. In fact, I think the biggest impact is already being affected. The augmented and virtual reality are being used for virtual simulations, for training, for surgeons, for surgeries that are complex, for sure. example. So we know it's doable. It's very expensive. Uh, it will, it, yes, it'll come. I mean, it's it, it's going to be very interesting. But let me uh, offer a theory that's not in my book because you have you to- You heard it here first. Exactly. <laughs> Let's assume a um, a virtual reality that's this good as the holodeck on Star Trek, okay. which is which is why Microsoft calls theirs the holo you know the hololens. They 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 
steal from Star Trek. Science fiction has good ideas. Star Trek was ahead of its time. It was, well, a lot, a lot of science fiction writers are ahead of their time. And they're not wrong about, you know, the um, doc, the Bones is a tricorder that would look at, di do diagnostics on a human being is no longer science fiction. One can build things like that. And we are, right? So you could. Sure. So here, here's the thing about human beings. We do know for a fact that there's, there's things called efferent nerves. We do know there are pheromones. We do know that the nature of a physical contact between humans, when you shake hands or make an agreement in a meeting, you sit in a meeting room with a person is different. We, we, um, we, we send signals that are not just visual. We operate on a tactile and olfactory senses, all the senses. Extraordinarily difficult, difficult to get that into the metaverse. Uh, haptics are coming next. They'll be used for training. That'll With help. Haptics. Sense of touch on the internet. So, but I'll have, but okay. I'll have to, I'll have to wear a glove that's yeah. a haptic glove that has feedback and sensors and you'll have to wear one and we can shake hands virtually and we'll feel each other's hand. That's already possible in principle. There are haptic feedbacks for screens. You can touch and feel bumps, even though they're not there. These, these are really interesting technologies. They're going to take a while to mature. So I think it's sort of, you know, science fiction, you can imagine stuff. And again, I tried to constrain my book and my look at the, what could happen in the twenties. So for example, so why the twenties, like, why will twenties, why will the twenties roar? Well, because if technology increases productivity, the mm -hmm. roaring is in my parlance, the same as the roaring twenties. Sure. Good. Sure. I mean, I've heard, I was thinking like, coming out of the pandemic, which was weirdly timed to a similar time frame as the 1900s. I know. And then the roaring 20s. And then, of course, um, you know, the the Great Depression. Um, yeah. It's, well, it's a lot. <laughs> well, but I do think people are anxious to get out of their houses and go out and yeah. do things and travel and go to restaurants and all of that. And that kind of reminds me of that as well. Well, I think, it, 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 I, yeah, same page. So what I when I started writing the book, which I ironically I began writing contemporaneous with the great lockdowns, which is kind of hard to be an optimist during that dystopian couple of years <laughs> in our, in our country. 700 days today. Yeah. Crazy. But um, I started with the roaring twenties analogy, not because of the lockdowns and the pandemic, but because of what was going on technologically and economically in the early 20th century. It's very much like today, which I, which I map out. However, the analogy is also a valid Politically, it was a very tumultuous political time, race riots all over the country, uh, people killed in race riots. The Charleston, South Carolina was under martial law because of race riots. We had uh, we had the Bolshevik Revolution, the Red Scare. People worried about communism infecting America. If you, you know, again, use a magic Google machine and read about the history of the early 20th century, it was just as challenging, not just wars, but domestic political strife, a lot like today. And of course, then the, then the pandemic happened and people were, once it was behind, and there were three waves of the 1918 flu. People, most people don't know it lasted right into 1921, early 1921, through the 20s, 1920s, early 1920, late, sort of late 1920, early 1921. So people were, as you say, uh, then just like now, just eager to have fun again, just yeah. and want to forget about right. all that bad stuff, forget about the war, forget about... So I think culturally we're, we've come to that same point. People are like that. So I, that's why I would happily easily forecast it. global tourism will boom again, go back to where it was. It's still not close. Uh, people are almost driving as much as they were before. They are 
doing quite that yet, but they will. Uh, the the whole uh, ebullience of our economy will will take off. But the critical point of my book is that the underlying productivity of the economy, creating more wealth for more people with fewer inputs. Fewer inputs means less material, less labor, less money, less less going into creating more. That's what productivity is by definition. That's how wealth is created, has always been created. Until technology created wealth, the only way to get more wealth was to steal somebody else's. Right. That's what that's what people did. They took their land, they took their money, they took their labor by uh, enslaving people or virtually enslaving people through serfdom. Wealth creation through technology is where you get a boom. The boom of the 1920s began because of the pivots in our productivity. We're at the same point again, and that's why it'll boom if we let it. Now, governments can hobble you know, changes because everybody's nervous about change, to your point. And yep. one of the changes is the, the technologies that allow the metaverse, that allow social media, are the same machines and technologies that will allow supply chains to be more productive, to healthcare to be more productive, to be better. Yeah. So does that mean we just have to put up with bad social media? Well, like this is... It's going to resolve itself. Yeah, it will resolve it. People don't like it. So that's how it gets resolved. I mean, we just don't like bad behavior. So now whether we resolve them stupidly or reasonably well, (laughs) it's always the political problem. So I don't want to take too much of your time, but can we switch gears uh, just for a brief second about energy since you're also an expert in that? That's right. And like in the last two weeks, gas prices have gone through the roof. Where do you think... We're headed uh, with that in terms of the United States becoming more solar wind powered or what do you think is going to happen if you could prognosticate out the next decade or so in terms of what we will do about energy and its uh, capacity to only get more expensive and not less? Well, so the short way to put it without being facetious is that energy will get cheaper over time. In the short term, it's going to get more expensive because of policies put in place by governments. it will get cheaper, not because there'll be more solar and wind. This is because there'll be more of everything, lots more oil and gas. And, and whether people believe it or not, lots more coal being used in other countries because it's, cheap. Yeah. Mm-hmm. it's just because it's cheap. But the, the challenge with understanding energy is that people disconnect from a sort of a simple fact. Human beings did not invent energy. Energy is a weird thing. <laughs> uh, one of the great physicists of the 20th century Feynman said that the physicists don't understand energy. We don't know what it, it's a very <laughs> bizarre thing, but that said, we didn't invent the resources we use to create power. We did not invent wind or sun. We didn't invent coal or oil or gas or moving water. They just exist in nature. They're all free. They're all free. And they all have more, more, there's more of all that stuff than humans could use in any time frames that are meaningful. That's, that's, this idea of shortages of energy have nothing to do with reality. What we have is a shortage of the capacities to convert nature's natural forces into useful power and energy delivered in a way we can afford in a manner which we will accept. Okay. So we have to build technologies to extract natural flows, natural resources into useful forms, whether it's drilling for oil or digging up the ground to make wind turbines and solar arrays and batteries. Everything involves extraction of materials from the earth. You have to build machines, which cost money, and they wear out. So it's always about technology. 
the technology and physics of energy will tell us that the world will be using lots of oil and gas and coal for a very long time in lots more batteries and wind and solar as well. But there's this, the, this bizarre political politicization actually of, of energy is unfortunate and doesn't comport with reality. We'll need and, and what do you mean by that? Like uh, a, uh, a government prioritizing one form over another? Yes, you can't. The idea the, we have we have governments here in America, states and federal, and in all over Europe, mainly, mainly the OECD countries. The other nations are not playing the fiction that we can quote transition from hydrocarbons, so-called fossil fuels, fossil fuels to wind, yeah. solar, batteries. That we can make a quote transition. The transition idea is a fundamentally flawed. Uh, new energy forms are additive a bit all through all of history. The world has spent, the Western world, $5 trillion in the last 15 plus years on wind, solar, and non-hydrocarbon energy. $5 trillion so far. We've reduced the dependency on hydrocarbons by two percentage points, two percentage points after $5 trillion of spending. It's a meaningful change. So wind, solar make a lot more energy than they ever did in, 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 uh, in human history. But as of today, right now, the world gets roughly 300% more energy from burning wood, pretty old energy form, than from yeah. all the solar arrays in the world combined. And so what about the climate impact? Isn't that why governments are prioritizing solar? Well, of course, the, well, I, un- I understand the why. So I mean, I, the worst I, climate I, impact is wood. <laughs> That's a bad one. Well, burning stuff creates carbon dioxide. That's it, yeah. because it's not an accident. It's not to, to, to not to be. And again, it's been politicized. The, yeah. One creates carbon dioxide deliberately. It's not a, a side effect. You you combust carbon with oxygen intentionally because in high school chemistry, it's called an exothermic reaction. You want the or, heat. The way you get <laughs> the heat is you produce carbon dioxide. That's the point of it. So if you don't want carbon dioxide, you can't burn anything. Um, the idea that we can avoid burning anything is, let me just put it in, in these terms. The International Energy Agency, which is an advocate of the transition, has a, an aspirational plan to, quote, transition from hydrocarbons, which will require that we double down on what, what the world was supposed to have done under the Paris Accord. No one in the world is doing what they promised in the Paris Accord. Let's just stipulate that's okay. not happening in the IEA. It's pointed that out in complaint. No one is doing what they promised for the transition, despite all the all of the money that's being spent. In their aspirational plan, doubling down on the Paris Accord would radically increase the use of wind, solar, and hydro over the next 30 years. And their forecast in the year 2050, in that aspirational doubling down, which no one is doing, not even close, <laughs> the world would still get more energy in the IEA's forecast in 2050 from hydrocarbons than it did in the year 2000. Oh, wow. And it would still comprise half of all the world's energy in the year 2050. So the only question that it's relevant really should be, how do we get to that point, even if that's the point you want, with the minimum possible cost? Because raising the cost of energy for people is highly, highly destructive to economies, highly destructive to the disadvantaged, highly destructive to the poorest of the world and the poorest in America and Europe. So Money matters. And so as a, so as a physicist, one thing I learned the hard way, both in finance and in politics, is that follow the money, right? It's the old adage. You, yeah. Money matters. And we're, we're, 
launching a path that's highly economically destructive by okay. trying to accelerate a quote transition that can't be accelerated because of, to use a physics word, the inertia in big systems. Yeah. Big systems, billions of people using gigatons of materials and fuels can't be changed quickly. And if you try to do it too quickly, you cause economic destruction and you cause unintended environmental uh, harms yeah. too. Externalities for sure. Well, I'd love to end on a positive note, and it seems like that's a real possibility here. So, um, uh, and I really just want to say up front, I appreciate, I've learned so much from you, but um, so uh, tell me why you're um, feeling good about the next 10 years. Well, I'm feeling optimistic about the American political system, despite all the chaos. I emigrated here because I, I, I like the American zeitgeist. So I think we'll resolve we won't fix them. We're not going to all hug and get along, but I think we'll, I think we'll come to some kind of quasi center again. We're not really there yet, but we'll come back. We cover about, so I'm optimistic about that, but that's not based on physics or economics. It's yeah. personal. Uh, but I am very optimistic about the toolkit of technologies available to conquer all the things that we worry about. Uh, but I don't mean conquering wars, that though technology is relevant to that too, as a former cold warrior. But the challenge of making healthcare cheaper, better is technology. The challenge of having a cleaner, safer environment is technology centric. And the technology gains there are just astonishing. And by that, I don't mean just wind and solar and, you know, burning cleaner, burning fuels more cleanly. All that, all that is possible. We can, we can imagine and see based on what's already happened uh, profound advances in each of the areas that we we all care about, and, and as well as education. By the way, I'm I'm very optimistic about resolving some of the challenges we have in what we call equities in education mm-hmm. and skills training. These are all all centered on technology opportunities that are sort of democratizing wealth in ways that were only possible a century ago. A lot of them are starting now. They're starting in the twenties. We're and they're not in the everyday news, but look, yeah. uh, I'm, I'm optimistic because I think when we see what the promise is, we'll want it, which That's is why right. I wrote the book. You have to, you have to know what the promise is to say, well, I want that. I mean, I, but when cars were invented, when people wanted a car, but it was too expensive, too unreliable and entrepreneurs like Henry Ford made them less, ex, you know, less expensive, more reliable. We built roads and yeah, people objected to roads in the backyard. They were noisy. So we we deal with that. No one would want no one would want to eliminate automobile today. Yeah, and it's brought great. It's democratized society in profound ways. That's awesome. Well, I appreciate it. That's great. I'm optimistic too. And um, <laughs> good. Very interesting to talk to you. Thank you so much. Thank you. Don't lose your optimism. <laughs>